0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea. Christ, creed, and controversy in the turbulent 4th century. Part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 19, The Nefarious Nerd. Who is Julian the Apostate? As I hinted last time... Religious policy in the empire is about to make a dramatic U-turn, but to understand why this is, we need to back up a little bit. You remember that Constantius had purged all of his male relatives when he and his late brothers ascended to the throne. There were only two exceptions to the purge, Gallus and Julian, who were both just boys and were too young to be threats to Constantine's three sons. We've already talked about Gallus. Constantius named him a Caesar to hold the line against the Persians. Gallus then went mad with power and started frying people around him with evil force lightning while muttering to himself about all the people who were out to get him. So Constantius had to lure him in a trap and executed him the whole nine yards. That leaves Julian. Now Julian was an interesting character. He was raised a Christian And during the first years of his life, Eusebius of Nicomedia, that old ally of Arius, was his guardian. Now, Constantius kept a pretty close eye on Julian as he grew up, but Julian wasn't always on a tight leash. In fact, he was allowed to pursue a classical Greek education with pagan tutors, and that tutelage shaped Julian into the man he would become. The realm of ideas was the one place where Julian could explore without fear of retribution from his cousin if he decided that Julian was too out of line. And as Julian explored the best ideas of the past and present, he became many things. A sincere believer in ancient Roman values, an arrogant loner, a reluctant soldier. But above all, Julian became a massive massive nerd. Nowhere was Julian's nerddom more evident than in how taken he became with an ancient philosophy that we now refer to as Neoplatonism. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about Neoplatonism because it's big and complex and fascinating and worthy of a podcast in its own right, so if I start, I'm never going to stop but there are a couple of things you need to know about it in order to make sense of Julian and what he's going to do with the empire. The first is that Neoplatonism was an eclectic combination of Plato's philosophy and insights glommed together with a whole bunch of other philosophical schools. That's why we call it Neoplatonism, that Platonism that came after Plato's doctrines came into contact with the other schools. The second thing you need to know about it is this. Like Plato before them, the Neoplatonists believed that the true world, the realm of reality, was the realm of spiritual truths and ideals. The goal of life is for the human being to unite the spiritual and intellectual part of oneself to that spiritual realm. But there was a division between the Neoplatonists about how best to do this. Many of the Neoplatonic philosophers thought that you united yourself to this true realm of ideas by, well... Being a philosopher. Shocker, the philosophers think their way is the best way. But seriously, they thought that you just thought deeply about things, you came to see these truths, and in that process, your mind became united to the truths you could suddenly perceive. But there was another group of philosophers that thought this wasn't quite right. They thought you united yourself to the realm of reality by participating in a bunch of secret, mystical, religious rituals. For these guys, the traditions of Greek paganism weren't just the superstitions of the masses. If you really understood what the rituals were about, if you had a proper allegorical understanding of Homer's works and of Greek liturgical traditions, well then all of that wasn't just silly nonsense. It was a portal to the realm of the divine. Julian started off studying with the first kind of Neoplatonist, the hyperrationalist kind, But eventually, he fell in with the second, more mystical school. And in fact, through most of his life, he would spend it getting initiated into about every single mystery cult they had available. Now, as you might imagine, if you come to think that pagan Greek religious rituals are the key to ultimate reality, you probably aren't going to be all that thrilled about the Christianity that displaced those Greek religious rituals. And you'd be exactly right. Julian converted to paganism at age 20 and never looked back. That is why he would be known to history as Julian the Apostate. But that didn't stop him from rising in the imperial ranks, in large part because he was pretty good at keeping his beliefs hidden. Constantius named Julian to be a Caesar at age 24. Now, Julian didn't want to be a Caesar, to be clear, In fact, Julian stated throughout his life that he felt like being a Caesar was a death sentence. At one point, he says it's like being asked to manage a chariot team for a big, wealthy, famous charioteer when you don't like chariots yourself and have never gone to the races. While that might be false humility, I'm actually inclined to believe Julian on this score. Being a Caesar meant that Julian was going to get thrust into the limelight and going to have to make all sorts of important decisions that could get him executed for treason if his cousin Constantius didn't like what he did. It also meant becoming a military commander, and for a massive nerd like Julian, time spent on war was time spent not reading books. But he resigned himself to his fate and resolved that if he had to be a Caesar, he would put all his effort into it. And so he did, and it turned out he was really pretty good at this whole military leadership thing. He didn't go mad with power like his brother Gallus did. He made some pretty successful campaigns against the Frankish tribes in Gaul, and was a capable administrator of the Empire's logistical and economic difficulties. Interestingly enough during this time, he also took up a vegetarian diet, a very unusual thing for an emperor to do, but one that would probably keep him healthy enough to live for a long time. It seemed like he was all set up for a slow, capable rise, leading to an eventual stint as an Augustus. But fate would speed up that clock. In February of 360, Shapur Second got up to his old tricks and invaded the eastern half of the empire yet again. He took an important Roman city, and Constantius knew it was time to respond. He drummed up troops across the empire and ordered them to march to the east to help him take back this territory. Now, some of the Roman legions didn't like this at all, especially those in modern-day France, which is where Julian was stationed. After all, these guys had nice wines, good chocolates, amazing cheese, great weather. And they really didn't want to give all that up to go march into a sandy desert and risk death by exhaustion and thirst or getting their head lopped off. So as these legionnaires fumed about their orders, rumors started flying that Constantius was a no-good, fun-hating tyrant. Nothing like their Caesar Julian. Julian was alright. Julian wasn't going to make them go fight the Persians. Julian had helped them beat their enemies right there at home. Why should they have to go off and fight a war when they'd already won peace? In fact, Julian had personally sworn to them that they would never have to serve beyond the Swiss Alps. And hey, hadn't Julian almost gotten killed by Constantius when he was young? Well, they'd better do something before bad things started happening to him. And they did do something, which was to hail Julian as an Augustus and not just a Caesar. We're not clear if Julian orchestrated this coup. There is some evidence to suggest that he did, but it's not conclusive. It seems likely to me Julian at least had some say in this, but it may have been a matter of capitalizing on existing revolutionary energy rather than creating it whole cloth. But in either case, once they had hailed him as Augustus, there was no turning back. Julian took a whole bunch of troops, and after some preparation, Marched into Constantius's territory. He had seen what Constantius had done to usurpers before, like Magnentius or Gallus. He was not going to wait for the rebel crusher to make the first move. But that strike would never come, because during his campaign against the Persians, Constantius fell gravely ill. As he came to the end, Constantius then made a choice that would change the fate of the empire forever. He named Julian as his sole heir and the Augustus of the whole empire. This may seem an odd move for the empire-protecting, rebel-crushing Constantius. After all, he was a big fan of order and unity in the church and the empire, and he punished people who violated those rules harshly. Now, Julian declaring himself an Augustus was definitely a big break of the rules, But Constantius' biggest concern was for unity above all else. The way he saw it, the Empire had no clear successor if he died. His only child was his daughter, Constantina, who couldn't inherit the throne. He had no male relatives left besides Julian. That tends to be a side effect of purging your whole family. So if he didn't recognize Julian as his heir, a bloody power struggle was virtually certain to ensue. So, he did the practical thing. He acknowledged Julian's claim and preempted the Civil War. And just like that, the Roman Empire was suddenly ruled by an emperor who wasn't just a non-Christian, but actively hostile to Christianity. The last time Julian ever set foot in a church was for Constantius' funeral. After that, he would declare his pagan sentiments publicly and leave the church behind forever. What would happen now that Julian the Apostate ruled the empire? Well, actually, not much because Julian is going to get killed by the Persians in about two years. But they are an important two years, especially because of what didn't happen. You see, Julian didn't take a persecutory approach to the church, he had grown up on the stories of the great persecution and so he believed that explicit persecution would only give the church more moral authority and garner more sympathy from the rest of the empire. Also, keep in mind that by the time Julian takes over, Christianity has been the state religion for between three to four decades, depending on what part of the empire we're talking about. Every capable administrator who remembered the old order in which paganism was favored and Christianity was a detriment to your political career Well, they were all either dead or well into their retirement. Julian had no established pagan religious organization to empower and no cadres of ready-made pagan administrators to run his empire. He needed the Christians who were in power. So instead, he left Christianity legal and just did his best to sideline the church. Where he could, he moved Christians out of powerful positions. He re-legalized the pagan rites and attended them frequently. And when the quarreling bishops of the church started fighting with each other and calling each other heretics, Julian just sat back and laughed and let him go at it. Most critically, this meant that Constantius's imperial policy of forced unity was out the window. Julian didn't want Christianity to prosper, he wanted it to wither, and the more the church fought, the more likely that was. Now, of course, that wasn't going to happen. But in the short term, it meant that bishops who dissented from the Homoian victory had freedom to continue ministering and working. That's the problem with Constantius's attempts to force unity on a group that wasn't actually united. It all fell apart as soon as he wasn't there to keep the pressure up. But that didn't mean that all was well and good for the plucky, hard-pressed defenders of Nicaea. You see, when Constantius died, Julian had signed a decree allowing all exiled bishops to return home. That meant Athanasius, well into his third exile, could finally, happily, return home from his friends the monks and take up his nicer residence in Alexandria. It was especially easy for him to slip back in the role because when Constantius died, the people of Alexandria had rioted and killed their current bishop, leaving an absence for Athanasius to fill. With Athanasius' return, everybody was happy and everything went back to normal for several months. And then a letter arrived to Athanasius from Julian, stating, Yeah, I didn't mean you, buddy. I'm serious. Julian wrote a letter in which he said that when he had said he was ending the exile for all bishops, yeah, he didn't mean Athanasius too. So the petulant, persecuted promulgator of Nicaea was pushed out of his city yet again to begin his fourth exile. We don't know exactly why Julian had this change of heart. Some traditions state that Julian was envious of how well-loved Athanasius was by the people of Alexandria. More likely, perhaps, is that Julian had inherited Constantius's opinion that Athanasius was trouble, and he wanted to nip that trouble in the bud before it blossomed, into more riots in the eternally riot-prone city of Alexandria. In either case, Athanasius was once again away from his home. Apparently getting real tired of it, Athanasius decided to settle down in the Egyptian desert again, hanging out with his monk pals until this thing blew over. This also had the advantage of allowing Athanasius to run his diocese by letter since he was so close by. A Christian emperor probably would have been infuriated by this. Julian didn't particularly care, so Athanasius could keep doing his bishop thing just in the somewhat less comfortable caves of the desert hermits instead of a home in Alexandria. But if Julian wasn't going to persecute the church, he was going to displace it. Julian was insightful enough to appreciate the church's appeal to the masses, One of the largest sources of this appeal was the church's charity program. Christian churches were places where all people, whether they were believers or not, could receive help and succor. Now Julian disliked this for many reasons. Christian charity attracted more people to the church. It also gave people an avenue of social support that wasn't connected to the imperial power structure. So Julian began to envisage a parallel system of pagan charity that would ultimately flow down from the emperor, who in his mind was ultimately responsible for the welfare of all the citizens in the empire. Now, this strategy is pretty indicative of Julian's policies as a whole. He didn't so much repeal ideas he disliked as attempted to displace them. Case in point, ever since the time of Diocletian, power had been ever more centralized in the Roman Empire. Now, Julian didn't like this trend. He was actually pretty alone in disliking it, because the biggest beneficiary of central control was, of course, the emperor himself. Julian didn't like it for the same reason that he didn't like Christianity. He was a massive nerd. And his area of nerddom was classical Greek and Roman philosophy and politics. Julian's vision of the empire was an idealized version of the Roman Republic in which laws and not emperors were the ultimate authority. He couldn't undo the reforms of his predecessors without throwing the empire into chaos, but he could try to counterbalance them. And that is exactly what he did, by empowering local authorities to push back against the demands of centralized bureaucrats. He even resumed the long-dead tradition of showing up to Roman Senate sessions in person and arguing for his proposed legislation on the Senate floor. Even his harshest critics in the Senate had to give him credit for that. It had been just about 400 years since an emperor had done what Julian did. Julius Caesar was the last. Of course, Julian didn't always live up to his ideals. Sometimes he was all too happy to use his imperial power to push through a change he wanted, as when he mandated that new taxes would require his personal approval. He could be more forceful with the church than was wise, as when he banned Christian teachers from teaching the Greek classics in a move to reclaim elite education for the pagans. He had more than a touch of an intellectual's arrogance about him, too. When he arrived in Antioch, the city was going through a massive food shortage due to inflated prices. Apparently, the popular slogan of the day was, We have the grain, why the pain? The people begged Julian to do something about this, particularly about their lack of fish and meat. Julian's response was to say that, Well, a city doesn't need meat. It only needs oil and bread and vegetables. Meat was only needed when the city was getting probably too luxurious anyway. Julian was trying to make a point about the superiority of his philosophical aesthetic vegetarian lifestyle. I guess the closest modern analogy would be if Gwyneth Paltrow was lecturing about the health benefits of her goop products to children dying of malaria, and Julian's lecture about the virtues of vegetarianism went over about as well as that would. Still, warts and all, there is no denying that Julian had a complete Well thought out system of changes that he wanted to make to the Roman Empire. There may have been no emperor since Diocletian who envisioned the world around him with such clarity and purpose. We'll never know how well his system might have worked, because Julian wouldn't live to see it through. In 363, just two years after his ascension to the throne, Julian was struck down. You see, he had inherited not just Constantius's throne, but his problems, including that brilliant Persian leader Shapur II, who was still attacking the Eastern Empire just like he had been when Constantius was dying. Now, during a winning counterattack against the Persian forces, Julian threw caution to the wind and ran after the retreating soldiers. And I don't just mean that he didn't scout out the position or didn't wait for reinforcements, Julian appears to have run so fast that he didn't even bother to put on his armor in his haste to attack. Then he took a spear in the abdomen that pierced his liver. He died three days later. While his court would spread rumors that he had been assassinated by a Christian, his own foolhardiness seems the far more likely cause. And with that, the last scion of the house of Constantine had fallen. Julian's successor would be a man named Jovian, whose main claim to the throne was just being one of Julian's bodyguards. Jovian was hailed by the troops as an Augustus after Julian's death, meaning two things, that he had their support, and also that we have returned to that tradition Diocletian was trying to break, of troops deciding who the next Augustus would be. Jovian reigned for slightly longer than this podcast episode. He ended the Persian conflict by suing for peace and giving the Persians everything they could have just taken by force anyway. He then began the march back to the capital, but died en route in what appears to be a renovating accident. You see, one night Jovian was sleeping in a newly painted bedchamber. The brazier was lit throughout the night, and it evaporated some of the paint into fumes that were apparently enough to kill the emperor of all Rome. Not exactly a heroic ending for a military man like Jovian. It's barely something you would see on a horror episode of HGTV today. Which is why I'm so excited to announce our exciting new partnership with a new venture called Grizzly Home Television. Home is where we spend most of our time. It's where we make those special memories with our family that will last forever. It's also where most of us want to die. So watch as our talented designers turn your house into that forever home with a wide array of death traps for you and the ones you love. Lead paint, frayed electrical outlets, gas leaks, GHTV. Home is where the heart is. Beating optional. But before he died, Jovian revoked most of Julian's religious decrees. He didn't outlaw paganism or tear down the temples Julian had built. Religious tolerance would be the order of the day. But since Christians were still massively entrenched in society, removing the barriers to their access effectively gave them victory. Jovian also ended Athanasius's exile, and apparently met with Athanasius in person, who gave him a copy of the Nicene Creed and reminded him how important it was not to let the Arians get away with their heresy. And just like that, even more quickly than it had come, Julian's reign was over, his reforms undone, his wars lost, his legacy erased. It's a tragic end for a man whom I find it difficult not to feel sympathy for. Julian may be a villain in terms of most church histories, but he was also an orphan, a victim of imperial intrigues since his boyhood. He was an idealist who sincerely believed in the kind of empire he was trying to build. And as someone who runs a church history podcast for fun, let's just say I have an extra bit of sympathy for massive nerds of all stripes. Now, Julian's intellectual legacy has fared better than his political one. He wrote a number of treatises and letters that we still have today. Most famously, or infamously, he wrote a refutation of Christianity titled Against the Galileans, Julie intended to call Christians Galileans, a nod to the skepticism that several biblical characters expressed toward Jesus' childhood home. Perhaps you remember the famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We aren't going to get into that particular work because it's a bit too far afield from our main story. As you can probably imagine, a guy who doesn't think the Trinity is real isn't going to have a whole lot of interesting things to say about the Father and the Son. However, Julian does have a lot of interesting things to say about his imperial colleagues. This is an invaluable resource for all of us who are interested in ancient history. Julian had first-hand knowledge of almost all the key players in our story, and once they were all dead, he was free to speak his mind without fear of reprisal. Now, his memories are very definitely revisionary, But that only makes them more interesting to us, because they tell a story in a way that nobody else does. For example, you might think that since Constantine's sons had, you know, had almost all of Julian's family killed, he would be kind of bitter about that whole thing. But surprisingly, he treats them with a pretty even hand. Take Constantius, for example, the architect of the whole purge. Now Julian has his eyes wide open about this whole thing, He was apparently told from early on that this was all just a big misunderstanding. Constantius had been deceived by his advisors. Constantius was afraid because his army was mutinying, and he didn't know what they would do if they didn't have somebody to kill. Now, Julian doesn't buy those excuses, and neither should we. Constantius is almost certainly behind the purge. But Julian also doesn't see his cousin as a simple, bloodthirsty tyrant. After his ascension to the throne... Julian says, simply of his cousin, that he was what he was, a thought-terminating cliché worthy of the gossip at a Midwest potato salad exchange party. But then Julian goes on to actually let Constantius off the hook just a little bit, for he says that his advisors, quote, made him harsher than he was by nature, though on his own account he was by no means of a mild disposition, even though he seemed so to many, end quote. Now, this is definitely a revisionist reading of Constantius. Most scholars today do think Constantius was pretty mild as far as emperors went. But again, Julian had more exposure to his brutality than most. And yet for Julian, the real problem wasn't his cousin. It was the advisors he surrounded himself with. That's a remarkably insightful take from someone who had every reason to hate this guy. And, for what it's worth... It's a view that most scholars would share as well. One of the first things Julian did when he came to power was purge some of Constantius's most troublesome advisors. It's one of the things that actually made him popular with his subjects. But Julian is not quite as merciful in his assessment of Constantine. For context, know that when historians are asked to pick their top five Roman emperors, Constantine is often a leading contender, sometimes all the way up to number one, but almost always in those top five. The general consensus, both in his day and ours, is that Constantine was really good at his job. Now that's true in every aspect of imperial affairs. Military, economic, logistical, administrative, religious, you name it, Constantine did important and good work there. But Julian begs to differ. He has less snark to share about Constantine's administrative reforms. Of course, his own policies form a kind of implicit rebuke of his uncle's relentless centralization. But when it comes to religion, Julian savages his uncle's legacy. And he starts from the beginning. You remember the famous story of Constantine's conversion, how he saw the cross appear in the sky telling him that in this sign he would conquer and then he painted the Christian symbol of the Labarum on his soldiers' shields and went from victory to victory. Now, we've already deconstructed that story as a nice bit of propaganda, covering up a much more gradual conversion. But Julian goes one step further. He thinks Constantine's conversion was actually motivated by guilt. Specifically, the guilt he felt over the murders of Crispin and Fausta. Apparently, Constantine was looking for redemption from his mistakes, and found it in Christianity. As we might say in therapy today, that sounds a bit like Julian's own baggage. He is looking back at a dynastic purge one generation before his own, and ascribing everything that went wrong afterwards to that. Constantine does not seem to have been nearly as bothered by the murders of Crispin and Fausta as Julian thought he should be. Perhaps a trauma response from the emperor, but a very understandable one. Now, Constantine was also not as bothered by earthly pleasures as Julian wanted him to be. Julian savages Constantine as a base, unintellectual sort of man whose chief concern in life was creature comforts. He actually wrote a satire about many of these emperors called the Caesars. There's a scene in this work in which Constantine is asked to choose a god. First, he runs to a god called Pleasure, who then promptly moves him along to a god called Dissolution. At the very end, a worn-out Constantine finally picks Jesus, who can wash away all the sins he's acquired from the first two gods. It's a biting image, it's a really funny scene, and it's one that reminds us that Julian's classical education was very effective. But effective does not mean accurate. While one can make many critiques of Constantine's reign, Julian is virtually alone in calling him a sensual man. At the very least, an emperor who spends the first two decades of rule fighting military campaigns is not somebody who insists on sleeping in a warm, soft bed every night. The more likely cause of Julian's invective, I think, has to do with his own vision of what an emperor should be. You will recall that Julian was a big fan of Neoplatonism, and as part of that, he had this vision of himself as a philosopher-emperor, guided by the wisdom of the pagan luminaries of ages past. Now, a big part of this pagan tradition was ascetic self-denial. Good pagan philosophers were supposed to rise above earthly pleasures like rich food, and ostentatious wealth. In fact, most of those philosophers adopted some kind of dietary restriction. The ancient philosopher Pythagoras most famously refused to eat beans because he thought you could be reincarnated into them, and it was mean to eat reincarnated souls. Julian didn't go quite that far, but his vegetarianism was his version of that sort of a dietary restriction, probably taken over from more Neoplatonic philosophers. Now, of course, Christians had their own forms of self-denial and asceticism. I mean, just look at the monks, who were often eating little more than bread and water. But my guess is that Julian found their practices inferior to the ideals of the Neoplatonic philosophers he idolized. Constantine feasted from time to time because Christians did not, on the whole, see feasting as a barrier to union with God. Julian, on the other hand, thought that feasting was a barrier to the philosophical life, And so he viewed Constantine in that life, as a sensualist who clung to the delusions of the Galileans because they offered him some justification for his hedonistic lifestyle. So Julian offers us a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity to see the new Christian empire and its founders through the eyes of its most passionate critics. His is not, of course, the voice that wins out. Instead, he is the last brilliant spark of the pagan fire that will die with him. Rome will never again be ruled by a non-Christian emperor, or at least a publicly non-Christian emperor. And not long after his death, the pagan renaissance that Julian sought to birth will instead be supplanted by a renaissance of Christian theology, as some of the brightest minds in church history take up their pens to resolve the Nicene question and it is to them we now turn. For as we begin to survey the theological landscape of the 360s, we can finally discern the beginnings of the end to this long, detour-ridden road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.